A gain for the future of humanity. That's how President Michael D. Higgins described the High Seas Treaty agreed by United Nations members at the weekend. This agreement has been almost two decades in the making. It provides a legal framework for parts of the ocean outside national boundaries. Two-thirds of the world's oceans are currently considered international waters and until now, without protection, marine life has been at risk of exploitation from threats like climate change, overfishing and shipping traffic. To tell us more about the treaty and why it matters. I'm joined by Dr. Olive Heffernan, marine biologist, science journalist and lecturer at John Hopkins University and her book On the High Seas is also due for publication shortly and you're very welcome to studio Dr. Heffernan. Thank you for having me. In the the years and years that it has taken to agree this treaty, what has been happening to international waters, to the high seas? Well, I think the fact that they're owned by nobody is what makes them so unique. So, I mean, as you said, these waters start um, beyond national jurisdiction, typically at the edge of the exclusive economic zone of nations. So 200 miles from shore. And so we've developed a real out of sight, out of mind philosophy with the high seas. It's sort of a classic tragedy of the common story, belonging to nobody. They've become a dumping ground. They've been overexploited. You know, offshore, it's just sort of lax enforcement and apathy. Um, So it's become a bit of a free-for-all. And it's not that it's lawless, but um, it's sort of, you know, piecemeal regulation. And none of the bodies that sort of manage activities on the high seas, whether it's shipping or fishing or deep sea mining, have conservation at the heart of their agenda. And so this treaty looks to reset the balance, really. So are you with Michael D. Higgins on this? Is this a gain for the future of humanity? How big a gain? I mean, it really is a gain. There's only so far that this treaty can go, but what it will do is it will give us a framework to create large marine protected areas in international waters. Right now, only 1% of the high seas is protected, and most of that is in Antarctica, in the Southern Ocean. Um, So it's been basically in a legal sense, impossible to create these marine sanctuaries offshore. And scientists say that we need to protect 30% of the planet, including the high seas, um, if we're to stem the loss of biodiversity, if we're to address the ecological crisis that we now face. And I'm mindful it's taken 20 years to agree this, but is agreeing at the easy part? How do you police it? I mean, that's a great question. I think in the last decade, that has actually become much easier. So um, non-profits, for example, are using satellite data to um, track ships across the ocean now. And it's possible to see anomalies in data. For example, it's possible to see where like a distant water fishing fleet is breaching the boundaries of a reserve. Um, of course, then you need to alert some sort of coastal patrol and, and we don't really have the who, resources. Who calls them exactly. to account? I mean, yeah, but we, we're kind of one step closer. Now we have the ability to create the reserves. We have the ability to actually see who's breaching those regulations. But, but are we there yet? We have the, the, the agreement now, but do the nuts and bolts need to be put in place? Absolutely. And, you know, it's kind of hard to say how long that's going to take. You know, some people have said maybe this will be in place in a couple of years. It might take five years. These sorts of international treaties can take a long time. And you to need them all on board all of the time. If they opt out, does does the agreement fall? Well, I mean, the way they negotiated this was great, in fact, because um, often these things have to work by consensus in terms of, you know, the creation of the reserves, um, which would be tricky because maybe there's big fishing nations that might not be completely on board with that. 
but um, they've they've set it up in such a way that it's by majority vote. So there shouldn't have to be an opt out. I'm wondering as well, how does this impact this country, for example? How does this impact our fishers? How does it impact? Uh, and we were talking about it on the programme last week. Uh, wind energy development at sea. Yeah, I mean, one of the the sort of points of this treaty is that it's going to put the squeeze on industry a bit um, offshore. So what it won't do is curtail existing industries on the high sea. So those are already managed by existing bodies, shipping, fishing. It won't do anything to curtail existing fisheries on the high seas. But what it will do is it will sort of put the brakes on um, future developments. So a good example is um, the idea that we might develop a twilight zone fishery. And so the twilight zone is a mid layer of the ocean between 100 metres and 1000 metres depth everywhere in the ocean. So there's a substantial twilight zone fishery in the Atlantic. Norway is interested in fishing this. In the past year, Ireland has started to talk about the possibility. You know, we have huge overcapacity in our fishing mm-hmm. fleet. What is it doing? Maybe you could go out and fish the twilight zone. And okay. 10 years ago, um, scientists said that they, they had discovered that this is the largest untapped fishery on Earth, potentially 10 billion tonnes of fish in this part of the ocean. These are tiny fish, a quarter yeah. of the size of a sardine, but they could be used to create fish meal to expand salmon farming. Okay. Um, so now this is potentially lots of, harder. Lots of possibility and yes. uh, we can read all about it in your book coming Absolutely. out soon. Thank you very much for joining us. That's Dr. Olive Heffernan.